Welcome to Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen, where we help you navigate the challenges of feeding your family and learn about the role food plays in our health and relationships. Feeding and food relationships can be stressful, confusing, and even destructive. I'm Kristen Saxena, a pediatrician and mother of four who's been researching and sharing what I've learned about feeding for over 10 years. In this podcast, I'll share my experience and expertise to help our kids and ourselves with everyday survival tips for real parents. This podcast is about progress, not perfection. So let's get started. Welcome back to Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen. I am your host, Dr. Kristen Saxena, and today is our second part in our three-episode series on food advocacy. And I'm very excited about our guest and our topic today. So our guest, Chef Anne Cooper, is uh, also known as the Renegade Lunch Lady. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about school food and her work in school food reform. I am very excited about this topic. I have always been interested in school food. I think it is such a huge opportunity for us as a society to make a huge difference in the nutrition and the health of our kids. And I am very excited to be talking to someone who's devoting a lot of her time to helping our kids in our country eat better. Uh, I also, kind of the other hat that I wear besides doing this podcast is do run a local family foundation and one of the things that our family foundation focuses on is childhood health wellness and nutrition and I've actually found that that nutrition piece on a kind of community scale has been really one of the more difficult topics uh, to to tackle so I'm very excited to talk to our guest today chef Anne who will hopefully give us some tips and pointers on differences that we can all make in our own community Um, so thanks for joining us Anne my pleasure i'm so excited to be here i want to give you a a proper introduction and you do have quite the uh the the resume so forgive me as i read this but uh you are a leading advocate for safe and sustainable food an internationally recognized author chef educator public speaker and advocate of healthy food a champion for school reform you were the director of food services for the boulder valley school district in boulder colorado for 11 years is that correct yeah and now currently uh running your foundation the chef and foundation and a partner in lunch lessons which is a consulting company for school districts that are going through food change in their own district also the author of books uh bitter harvest and lunch lessons so that's quite the impressive resume (laughs) oh thank you so i think first off i'm always curious um how people get to to where they are today. So you started your career, it sounds like sort of making fancy food in sort of the chef business and then somehow came into school food. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got there? Yeah, you know, I'm such an unlikely advocate for school food. I mean, I kind of came up as a semi-celebrity chef and didn't really want to know anything about kids and what they ate. You know, nothing worse could happen to me than on a Friday or Saturday night, one of the servers come in running into my kitchen and go, chef, chef, there's a screaming child on table 19. What do I do? I would say, ask them to leave. What are they doing in a restaurant? You know, but so I 
I started my career in white tablecloth restaurants, but I really had an interest in sustainable agriculture and sustainable food. And that sort of took me in this direction of really thinking deeply about the food we eat, why food makes us sick, who owns the food supplies. Um, and I worked as a chef all around the country, on, all around the world, on cruise ships, catering parties of 20,000, backstage for the Grateful Dead. Oh, wow. I mean, all doing all kinds of catering, catering backstage for the Grateful Dead. But in 1999, after I had written my book, uh, Lunch Lessons, and I'd really started to think again really deeply about what's happening in food, I got a call to uh, I got a call asking me if I would come work at the Ross School in East Hampton, New York, and I literally looked at the phone and went, said, what, me lunch lady? No way, you know? <laughs> but they said, come and see it, and I did. And I really started getting interested in how all of the experiences I had, catering and big events and being a chef in restaurants, how all of that could really change school food. So in 1999, I accepted a job as executive chef and director of wellness and nutrition at the Ross School in New York. It was very high profile. And eventually, I got asked by Alice Waters to go to California and take uh, work for her foundation and take over the Berkeley Unified School District. I did that for a number of years and eventually ended up in Boulder and started my own foundation. That's amazing. and. Who coined the term for you, Renegade Lunch Lady? Because I think that's a pretty badass nickname. <laughs> it was it was done by the press. When I, I actually would tell the press, I'm dropping out of being a white tablecloth celebrity chef and I'm going to become a lunch lady. And somebody quipped, <laughs> well, if you're a lunch lady, you're going to be the renegade lunch lady. And all these years later, it's still, it's still stuck. It's it stuck. Sticks. Well, it's fitting, I guess. So... I just feel like school food is, like I said, I feel like it's such an opportunity for our kids. We have them all. It's a controlled environment. We could make such a difference. We have normally, I know with COVID things are a little bit different and we can talk a little bit more about that, but normally that's our chance to have our kids kind of sitting as a community, sharing foods. I think there's just such a benefit to that time eating together, especially with your peers and the influence that that can have. But then on the flip side, you know, I, I went to lunch with a friend of mine last week and she has a seventh grader and she said, I don't know what to do. I get this itemized list of what she's having for lunch every day. She's having a pop tart and I'm not real happy about this. And I don't even know why that's an option. Like, what am I supposed to do? So I know that you're really dedicated to getting real foods and scratch cooking in schools. So what is something that What's kind of first steps that you take when you go into a school to try to make these changes happen? Well, you have to, the schools have to want to make the change. I mean, that's part of it. You can't change a school that doesn't want to, but there are lots of hurdles. So it's not like it's easy for schools to make change even when you want to make them. I mean, first off, we have to understand that most school districts only have a dollar thirty to spend on the cost of the whole meal. So there's not very much money. Mm -hmm. And especially now, you know, there's a labor shortage everywhere. It's hard to get things. You know, there's a transportation challenges. I mean, everything's sort of dire. 
But that being said, when we go into school districts, there's five big things that we talk about. Food, finance, facilities, human resources, and marketing. Food, where can we get it and make sure it's good? Finance, how do we make sure that we have the money to pay for it? Facilities, how can we cook it? Human resources, uh, cook it and, and store it. Human resources, how do we train? And finally, marketing and education, how do we get the kids to eat it? So you have to work through all of those issues. And eventually, as you start, little by little, putting better food in schools, kids will eat it. Uh, yeah. And so, I mean, how do you do this? So you have taken, I assume, like you've gone into the Boulder schools. They were probably eating more, what we would consider more traditional school food, the tater tots and corn dogs and things of that nature. So obviously it's it's a long process like you said and you have to go down several avenues but with a dollar 30 per student how, how do you do this what you really do is scratch cook because you know from going grocery shopping if you buy a highly processed value-added food even like a chicken nugget or a chicken strip per pound it costs way more than the raw product so if you're scratch cooking your food cost can go down your labor cost is going to go up but you can choose the ingredients so that they can be healthier and you have more money to spend on things like fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, whole grains. So you just start cooking. To cook, you need equipment and you need training. Yeah. But it's uh, scratch cooking is the gateway to better food. Definitely. So what in the schools that you've gone into, I mean, it's easy to imagine uh, you know, better nutrition, we're going to see kids that are able to learn better. I would think when they're exposed to the fo the foods, the real foods that you're giving them day to day, you're likely to see better nutrition profiles, more acceptance, less peaky eating is what I would imagine. But have you guys done anything to measure or or what kind of results do you see in the schools that you've affected? So we haven't done full-scale evaluation. As you know, it's very, very expensive. When I was in Berkeley, we did spend a half a million dollars on an evaluation. And when we were in the Ross School, but currently, no. But anecdotally, I can tell you that teachers say that when kids eat good food without a lot of that's not highly processed, without a lot of sugar, without chocolate milk, without Pop-Tarts, that they can think better, they can learn better, that when kids are well-nourished, they do better academically, they take less days off, they're not sick as much. Everything gets better. So now, now we're obviously, we've been in kind of one of the trickiest times, I think, in terms of feeding kids in these last couple of years. And so obviously COVID threw a huge wrench into the whole nutrition for our kids in terms of, we all know that there's lots of kids that are very dependent on school breakfast and lunch for a large amount of the food that they receive. I know that a lot of communities were really able to rally and be able to create ways that we could get food into the into the bellies, I guess, into the homes of our kids, even when they weren't in person in school. Um, first off, I guess, can you tell me a little bit about how, how you managed that piece? Yeah, so in Boulder, when COVID hit and our schools closed, we immediately started boxing food with raw ingredients. So instead of pre-making 
you know, food that somebody could recook at home. We started preparing these boxes that had seven breakfasts, seven lunches, and five snacks, but it was all whole products. So it was fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, whole grains, milk, bread, uh, things kids could make sandwiches out of, sometimes breakfast food, um, healthy cereals, granola, and we would send that home and we would put recipes in the boxes and then we started a whole website and a cooking series to show people what to do with the food. We bought a lot from local farmers and local producers. So it, it was, you know, we, we made the best of a, a bad situation, I think. Yeah. And now I, with a lot of kids returning to in-person school, um, are you noticing any any changes in the way? Obviously, a lot of accommodations have had to be made in terms of food that they're the way that they're feeding the kids. I know that um, you know one of my kids has to eat still eat lunch in her classroom and doesn't get to go to the cafeteria. Um, I think things like buffet lines or salad bars might be taken out of the usual rotation, um, and perhaps there's a, a bigger push to have you know more packaged food just to eliminate the idea that we'll be spreading COVID. So have you noticed things like that or how are you facing those challenges? Well, I'm not in the school on a day-to-day basis anymore, the school district, but what I hear from all kinds of people is everything's, you know, different in different schools. Some are feeding all the kids in the cafeteria, some are in the classroom, some are outside for a little while longer anyhow. <laughs> some still have kids at home and they're sending boxes. Some have a hybrid model where some kids are in the classroom and some kids are in the cafeteria. Uh, there has been a push to be more packaged. Um, there's a lot of school districts though that are, are still scratch cooking, a lot that have salad bars. So everyone's doing it differently. I think part of it depends on the politics of the area. Part of it depends on the vaccination rates of the area. Uh, in Boulder Valley School District, in Boulder County, uh, everyone has to be masked in all indoor spaces. So, you know, that kind of gives you more flexibility of moving kids around the school. Um, and then, you know, every other seat is empty. So there's space between the kids. I think everybody's doing it differently. And some of the data that's been coming out out of COVID and kind of the effects that we're seeing on kids' health, I know some of the more recent data has talked about the rather significant increase that we're seeing in childhood obesity and type 2 diabetes in kids. Um, I would be curious kind of what your take on that is, like what you think the reasons behind that are and what the best approach to hopefully combating that for the future is. You know, I think that during COVID, when you see those numbers, um, you have to realize it's all across the country. So, right. you know, the COVID experience of a family living in Boulder with access to the outdoors and that's already very outdoor focused is going to be different than someone living in a very urban environment with four people living in a thousand square feet, right? Mm -hmm. With, you know, so that being said, because there was much less exercise overall than kids would get, especially elementary school kids would get in school where it's mandatory to have recess, 
that for a lot of families that are food and nutrition insecure, they didn't have the same regular meals. The meals being sent home from schools were maybe highly processed. Depending on where you live, you might not have been able to get that food. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're in an urban environment where your kids were taking two buses to get to school, maybe you wouldn't go there to pick up the food. Maybe there weren't food delivery. So a lot of families, especially food and nutrition insecure families, were really eating a lot more processed food. So in many ways, school food can be the healthiest meal you know, mm -hmm. the kids eat or two or three, sometimes four meals that they would eat at school. Um, I think all that exacerbated what's been a problem for decades. So, you know, childhood obesity is going on 20 years of being a big problem and highly processed foods is really a huge part of that. I agree. And as I also thought about it, at least my own experience, too, with my own kids was I think that Another thing that really has exacerbated or exacerbated that, especially when they were not in school, was just the lack of structure as well. So kind of like you said, we're not having PE class. I know, you know, we were also trying to do work from home. So it became more difficult to to always strategize like what the kids were doing. And they had like their online school, but they all had four different lunches. So it was like you know, it took like three hours of the day to serve everybody during their lunchtime. So I would imagine that for a lot of people, myself included, that was sort of like, it was an insurmountable task. So you ended up with kids, I think often grazing or sort of fending for themselves. And, you know, if I'm, a, you know, thinking of my 13 year old son, well, he's probably fending for himself, just gonna grab some crackers and call that good for lunch or you know what I mean so um, easy to see where we're not having that structure a lot of grazing a lot of kids choosing what's easy and available as well so well and I think that in your household it sounds like there was an adult home while the kids were mm -hmm. in school but imagine for so many families living at or near or below the poverty line, those parents weren't home with the kids. Those fam parents just went to work every day and those kids were absolutely fending for themselves. And so they probably ate whatever. You know? Totally. So, yeah, I have a it's friend. It's been a very, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say I have a friend who is an administrator for one of the local school districts. And she was saying how, you know, in high, the high schoolers, they were seeing a very high failure rate for classes, much higher than normal. And the theory, at least, or what they thought was, like you said, parents weren't at home. And so they were kind of the parent in charge. So if they're busy trying to get their kindergarten brother online, you know, and their second grade sister to her on to her classes while they weren't getting their own stuff done. So I think that, you know, that that's what we are seeing academically. And like you said, the same thing. So if that same poor kid is also, you know, in charge of his and the other two's lunches, you can bet that <laughs> it's going to be probably less than ideal. <laughs> Not love scratch cooking. <laughs> So, right. yeah, um, the other thing that I think I would love for you to talk a little bit more about. So I was having a conversation with my brother who has two kids in school, like a middle schooler and an elementary school um, child. And he was saying, you know, one of the things that upset him most about school lunches was that I guess at their school, you know, they have like an account that they put the money in to pay for. It. And he said, if a kid runs out of money, that kid just doesn't eat or if 
if they do give them something, it's something like very small and very obvious that you didn't really pay for your lunch. So I know that you um, are very involved and interested in sort of the universal school lunch. So can you tell me a little bit more about that too? Yeah, so first of all, this school year, every single kid eats every single meal for free. So there's none of that. He did tell Um, me this was non-COVID, so before that. Before COVID. Many, many school districts, Boulder included, had policies that there was no lunch shaming, that every kid got the same meal every day, whether they had money in their accounts or not. So lots of even states have put laws on the books that said you couldn't feed kids a cheese sandwich, that every kid would get the same food. Uh, That being said, I think that what I'm really hoping is this idea of healthy, so it's always been called universal meals. We're starting to change that to be healthy healthy school meals for all. So that's sort of the new tagline, healthy school meals for all. And I hope that, and I was on a call yesterday, uh, I was giving testimony to a house committee saying that we needed to have healthy school meals for all in perpetuity that there should be no hungry kids. I mean, it really should be a birthright in our country that every kid every day has healthy food in school and no child is hungry. I mean, we're the richest country on the Mm -hmm. planet. Why is it, how is it even possible that kids are hungry in school or being lunch shamed or whatever? That's crazy, so we need to change that. So it kind of comes down to kind of the two separate issues in terms of if we're gonna go with universal school lunches, that allowing every kid, just part of going to school is everyone gets the same free lunch. And then there's sort of this other arm where it's like, and then let's talk about what's in that lunch. And- Absolutely. Okay, so, and which totally makes sense. And as I think about that too, you said at the very beginning, you know, in, in order to make change, you first kind of have to get all the parents on board. So do you, do you get, um, or have you in the past really kind of gotten some some backlash from parents that say, you know, my kid is not going to eat if you serve them asparagus and um, falafel or something for lunch, my kid doesn't eat that stuff. And I'm really worried that they're not going to eat because certainly, you know, as a pediatrician, I always felt like it was sort of ironic, though understandable that parents have this very large concern that their child is not going to eat, which doesn't make any sense in in the wake of our, you know, obesity crisis. It's like that's that's usually not the problem that we're we're coming across, but nonetheless, did you did you get that sort of feedback a lot like we don't want this cuz I want my child to eat and he eats chicken nuggets and hamburgers. Well, first of all, by and large, that's an adult problem, not a kid problem. What's the first word a child learns? It's no. <laughs> what are they saying no to? Whatever is on that spoon going into their mouth. It's the first place of power that a child has. And they learn that lesson. So what kids won't eat at home is very different than what they'll eat in school in a positive environment. That being said, The best food in the world has to be paired with education. School gardens, cooking classes, cafeteria educational opportunities, tastings, salad bars where kids can choose what they want. Give kids part of the, give them choice, you know, cook with them, garden with them, make them part of the process, and by and large, you'll grow their palate. 
And a hungry kid is not going to starve themselves to death. They are going to eat the food. Yes. And maybe they're not going to eat it all. And maybe they're not going to try every single thing. But every plate in schools consists of five items. It's protein, whole grains, fruit, vegetable, and milk. So, you know, maybe the kid only decides that they're going to have carrots and an apple and, you know, something else that day. Okay, but they're getting food. They're, you know, they're not going to starve themselves to death. They might tell you that but <laughs> as a parent, but they're not really going to do it. Yeah. And that's often what I would say, too, is, you know, hunger is a really great motivator. So if I had a lot of parents saying very also uh, concerned, like my child only eats, eats this list of four foods or whatever. And so, again, I think, like you said, it's like, well, hunger is a good motivator. So if at some point those are the only options, suddenly they're a lot more apt to try the fruits or vegetables or other foods that you want them to eat when you put it in front of them. So can you also right. talk? You know, I know you're a champion for real food for kids, scratch cooking. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance and kind of what you tell people is the importance of making sure that this is what our kids are eating? I mean, we have, I mean, you've already mentioned this huge obesity and diabetes crisis. And a doctor, you know this, but as well, and again, you, you know this, but for our audience, all of the diseases that used to be adult diseases have become pediatric mm -hmm. illnesses. You know, we see kids with heart disease, with kids with high blood pressure, certainly a, a tremendous amount of diabetes, and as we've mentioned, obesity, and, and never mind the mental health issues that go along with all those things. You know, so getting kids to eat real food fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, whole grains, healthy proteins in reasonable amounts paired with enough physical activity is going to keep them healthier. They're going to do better in school. They're going to have less days when they're sick. They're going to have more protection against things like COVID because mm -hmm. their body has a good immune system. I mean, it's, it's sort of a no-brainer. You know, we the old adage, we are what we eat is really true. And if we eat healthy food, then we're going to be healthier. Now, I sort of also adhere to the 80-20 rule. Like 80% of the time, be really good, eat really healthy. But 20% of the time, treat yourself or treat your kids. You know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, something that you would consider unhealthy once in a while if that's what your treat is. You know, right. like a treat for me might be champagne and caviar, but a treat for somebody else might be McDonald's. Okay, if you want to go to McDonald's, you know, twice a year, great, if that's the treat, you know. Definitely. But it's not a daily thing. Right, and I, I like that you said that too, because I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but a lot of it is just about being realistic and giving yourself some grace and not being perfect. And so I think sometimes it's overwhelming to hear all this, like everything needs to be scratch cooked and organic and local, and you go, oh my gosh, I'm tired, I'm ordering a pizza. And so I think that that's right. knowing that that can be part of life and that's fine and it's fun and it's part of the experience of living, if that's something that works for you and makes you happy, but again, making sure that you understand the importance of 
doing that every day is very detrimental to your health. And so uh, realizing that that should be more of the exception and not the rule or like that 80-20 I think is really great advice. Um, Another thing that I know you've talked a lot about is sort of the impact of chemicals and pesticides in our foods and the way that those affect our children. Can you also elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, I mean, we have seen cancer rates in children really grow exponentially in the past 50 years. And what else have we seen grow exponentially in the past 50 years? Chemical fertilizers, chemical sprays, chemicals on our food. And then there's colors and dyes and research that says that they're linked to ADD and ADHD. And we can't just keep filling our children with chemicals and whether mm-hmm. they're in the food or the environment and and think that nothing bad's going to happen. Yes, bad things are going to happen and we've seen it happen. Um, and that doesn't mean because I can hear somebody saying this, I can't I can't afford organic food. Right. Um, I can't. But, you know, again, it's the 80 20 rule. If your kid eats an apple a day, then I would try and get that apple as chemical-free as possible, maybe not organic, maybe integrated pest management or naturally produced. But, you know, if they eat beets once a year, I just wouldn't worry about it. So look at the things that your household consumes the most of and really work at having those things be the ones that are the healthiest. I think that that's super great advice because, again, I think everything's so overwhelming. I love when we can kind of talk about, well, let's just talk about what's the most bang for our buck. So what do we eat a lot of? Let's make sure that that is is the healthiest and kind of the cleanest that we can make it and then not stress out that, like you said, that every little morsel that we put in our mouth, that we're examining the label of every single thing. You know, if our kid wants a cracker, we're like, let me see. I'll, I'll read that and yeah. let you know if you can have one. So I don't, I, I love that because I think even exercising that type of tight control doesn't really prepare kids to be kind of competent eaters when they get out in the wild and are making decisions for themselves. So I really, I think that that's a really great piece of advice for parents. So kind of the other thing, so I would assume, you know, as a parent, you listen to this and so my kids actually um, go to a private school. And so years ago, I was on a wellness committee that they had at at their school and um, they actually were able, they were kind of at the time, my oldest son was actually in kindergarten then and he's 13. So uh, it was a while back, but they were serving more like your traditional school foods in their cafeteria. And so they actually did switch to a uh, like flick dining services, I think as the company, but they do more scratch cooking um, whole food type menu. And I remember like, obviously, like you said, the big issue was cost and i would say that the school lunches at our school i mean they they're about five dollars and not you know this dollar thirty and so it made me much more sensitive to the fact like how do you how do you bridge that kind of gap obviously in a public school system you have also the the volume piece that would be greater so that helps to reduce costs um but the other thing that they had is is getting um you know they needed a certain amount of kids to to purchase the lunches to kind of make their contract worthwhile. So, so much goes into that, even in that level. And I found that that was difficult. And certainly in one independent school, making that change is a lot 
less difficult than in an entire school system. And so as a parent, you know, if you're if you're thinking about your own kids and then if they're going to public school and you're like, I really want to be able to to do something to make a change in in this you know, in our system, I want to see better, better food in our lunches, but you're also, I mean, you're a parent and you're working and you've got these kids. Is there something that you would say is kind of like, again, sort of that biggest bang for your buck, something I can actually do that would maybe be effective in helping to create that change that they want to see? For, yeah. First of all, I want to say on that $5 to $1.30, $1.30 is the amount of money most schools have to spend just on the food. But the reimbursement rate, what the government is giving schools for lunches is just about $4 right now. So it's getting closer to maybe the $5 that you saw. And most school districts are are working on much bigger volumes as you alluded to. So they can buy food less expensively in many cases, and they also get a, some other government subsidies. So. Um, there is a little more flexibility in the system. But when parents come to me and say, I want to change the kid, uh, the food in my kid's school, first of all, you have to understand that unless you go to a private school, it's not about that school, it's about the school district. Very, very, very rarely can one individual school change the food. You have to change the whole school district. And what I usually do first is tell the parents to find the wellness policy. Every school has to have one, has to be publicly available on the website. So find the wellness policy and read it. And then go and eat lunch with your child in the cafeteria and see if the food that's in the wellness policy is the food in the cafeteria. And if the food is the same as the wellness policy, but not good enough, then the wellness policy has to change. If the wellness policy looks good, but the food's not good enough, then implementation and oversight needs to change. Once you've done that, get all the parents together and have a meeting with the food service director. Find out what their challenges are. Like, you don't know what they're going through. So why is it that the food isn't up to what you think it should be? They'll all tell you they're meeting the guidelines or exceeding the guidelines, but the guidelines are pretty low, you know? I mean, they're certainly better, you know, since Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act in 2010, but they're still not what maybe we would want our kids eating. So go talk to the food service director, ask what kind of support they need, what it would take to have better food, what you think better food looks like, and work with them. If that doesn't work and you don't get anywhere, then get all those parents together to go to the school board meeting and at every school, school board meeting, everyone can have two minutes usually, sign up 20 or 30 parents to take up the school board's time explaining what you want and why it should be better, and then get the school board to help you make the change. And your consulting company, is that something that they could also offer to their local school district to say like, here's a organization or a company that might be able to assist with changes in the right direction? Yes, but first I would say that the Chef Ann Foundation has a couple of websites, one uh, chefannfoundation.org and the lunchbox.org, and there's a tremendous amount of information. No, well, thank you. I think that that's a super helpful recommendation for parents that are kind of tr trying to take those first steps to see what they can do to improve 
uh, food in schools. So thanks so much. Uh, I think that we can move on to our next segment of our podcast. And that segment is something that we call Ask Me Anything. And I guess the surprise to you is it's actually Ask You Anything Too. Uh, So the questions are usually not too difficult, but um, they're questions that our, our listeners have submitted to us. So one question I have is from Ben. And he says, uh, we don't drink chocolate milk at home, but my first grade daughter asks if she can have it at school. What should I do? Should I let her have the choice, say no, or say something like maybe once a week as a treat? Well, first of all, I would question why the school was serving the chocolate milk and try to get them to stop so the parent doesn't isn't in the situation of being the bad guy. Right. right? But if the school's not going to stop uh, and the parent doesn't serve chocolate milk in school, I would say no. I mean, if it's not something I mean, if the parent doesn't serve it at home and it's not something you would have your kid eat, I would say they shouldn't have it in school either. That being said, maybe once a week or once every other week as a treat, maybe would be okay. Yeah, I agree. I think this is really the tricky parts. And I think that it kind of goes back to that 80-20. And I think the opportunity that we have with school food, and I have thought this, and maybe this is just being the tired parent, but wouldn't it be nice if you knew that they were getting the healthy food at school and you could sometimes be that 20% that does the chocolate milk or you know what I mean? It's sort of like flip the other way. I think a lot of times where you feel like I'm not real happy about the food you're eating at school. And so now I'm bearing, you know, the 80 plus percent in terms of wanting to get you to, to eat more of the whole foods or the real foods. So, but I do think it's tricky because a lot of it comes to, you know, making choices for your kids. And, um, you know, if you restrict it, I found, like you said, like the first thing that you'll do is is find out like weeks later that they've been having chocolate milk like every single day. And it's because you said they can't, right? So they're like, oh, well, here's my chance. So it's really tricky, but I agree. I think, you know, even in first grade, I think that's a conversation to have with that child and just say like, yeah, you know, I know they have that at school. Here's the reason why I don't choose to have it at home. I would suggest that you maybe only have this once a week. Um, Maybe, you know, you could make it like Fridays or chocolate milk days or however you want to do it. You know, with little kids, I think sometimes they can get excited about the the fun element of it being a special day. Um, So that I think that might be a way to do it. But in the end, I think like ultimately, unfortunately, I think if it's something that's not um, that you can't control from home, uh, I think, you know, it's going to be their decision in the long run. So I would suggest probably just trying to have that conversation to help them make their own wise choices um, and then cross your fingers and hope for the best. <laughs> but I think exactly right. I think that's the other thing is that, you know, maybe that's something as you're having these conversations with the school board or anything that you can do, perhaps that's again, another, would you say that that's a good first step to say like, number one, maybe we can just eliminate chocolate milk? Yeah. Well, eliminate added sugars. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's beyond chocolate milk, really, right? Like a lot of schools serve dessert every day. In Boulder, we serve it once a month. You know, it's the special treat. I mean, right. there is no kid going to school that's going to get sick because they don't have enough sugar. <laughs> Sugar's not one of these nutrients that we don't get enough of. And so... Yes, I mean, schools should definitely not be serving flavored milk. They do not, kids don't need the extra sugar. 
Um, but we should look at sugar as a whole because there are no sugar guidelines from the USDA. Well, I think that brings up another point, too, that I would ask. Did you ever, when you would go into schools, and I'm assuming at the Boulder schools or the places you worked that that, that the flavored milks were something that needed to go, was that another thing you get pushed back from? Because that's another, I think, like parental obsession that I, I know is like, you know, ingrained in all of us from our got milk, drink your milk days as a kid. And so I think that you know, those same parents that are so worried their kids are not going to eat anything are they like, at least they drink their milk. So it needs to be chocolate milk. So they'll drink it. So d- how do you how do you sort of respond to that when I would assume that you've gotten that somewhere along the line? Yeah, I got death threats when I took chocolate <laughs> milk out of the Berkeley school district. Um, you know, here's the thing. There's lots of research that says that by and large, we don't have so what people say or what they think is that my kid is not going to grow healthy and strong without milk that mm-hmm. milk is the answer so it's not milk that's the issue as you know as as a doctor it's calcium mm-hmm. but all the research says is that you know we don't have a calcium crisis in this country what we have is an obesity crisis and tween girls do seem to overall need some extra calcium. And certainly milk is a good delivery system, but so is, you know, beans and hummus and kale. I mean, there's lots of ways to incorporate calcium into a diet besides chocolate milk. And we certainly don't need the added sugar. So, and if kids are drinking milk at home, why would they need chocolate milk in school? over 80% of all the flavored milk served in our country is served in schools, which means most parents never buy it at home. So why would we need it in schools? I think that's a great point. And then also, like you said, just sort of, and I think it's no fault of parents. I mean, I think thinking back to when I was a kid, I mean, there, there was so much heavy milk marketing, I guess. And um, so I think we all grew up thinking like, you know, if nothing else, drink your milk you know if you're not going to eat your dinner drink your milk and so I think it's just um you know being trying to be part of that re-education to say like that was that was big business kind of talking to you not so much right right. and so I think that that's the struggle is that you know a lot of those recommendations seem to be coming from a good place but it's hard to be aware of what the motivators were to put those kind of things in front of us even when we were kids so I think that that's part of it. Okay, I have one more question that is, I don't love the school lunches that are served, but I see benefits in having my child eat the lunches from school. What should I do? Let him eat the school lunches or pack his lunch every day? It's tough. (laughs) Neither. I think you work to change the school lunch. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, back to what parents can do, you know there is a benefit to having kids eat together there's a social component certainly covid has a problem right at this minute but there's a social component for many kids it's the only socialization they actually have Mm -hmm. during the school day so i think there's lots of really important things about sitting around a table with friends but if the food isn't good enough work on changing it 
Um, and then maybe the 80-20 rule, have them eat school lunch two or three days a week and pack them. And also, I'm a big fan of having the kids pack their own lunch. You know, get them in the habit of understanding what a complete meal is and let them help decide. And, you know, for a lot of parents that pack their kids' lunches, they don't eat the lunches because their lunch isn't enough time or they're trading food or all this other stuff. So if they're really invested in it, they're more likely to eat it. Yes, I I really like what you're saying because I think that is really tricky. Um, Number one, what you said about not having enough time for lunch, that has been a theme I have heard for years. And I don't know, you know, as you go to your school board, maybe that that's another thing to try to bring up. um, Because I think that that is just so sad to me when little kids don't have the time to eat their lunch. And like you said, it might be the only time that they really get to socialize. And so just and there's such value to that as well. Um, so I think that that's another piece, probably if you're going in, in full fledged to work on this, I think that's another thing to bring up. But like you said, I think that there is such benefit or opportunity really with school lunches because that experience of eating together, sharing the same food. We've talked a lot, um, about family meals in the, in the past on our podcast and all the benefits that come from that. But, you know, a family is kind of what you make it. And so a little bit, you know, for, for those little guys, that's their school family. And so I totally believe you get those same benefits. You know, they, they learn so much just sitting there, socializing with their peers, sharing food. I think it, it makes them more apt to try foods they wouldn't try because, you know, their friend next to them is happily eating the kale or whatever, you know, or even if it's not, you know, even if it's foods that maybe are, are, are more processed, but it's not a food that they other would. Just that experience of, of trying new foods, I think, is so beneficial for kids. So I really like that idea, perhaps, to approach it to say, like, well, I don't love the food, but I want them to get the benefits. Plus, I think it's just easier for families if we can count on them being able to get the food from school. So to say, like, maybe do a half and half and say, well, let's pick the ones that look the best and we're going to do school lunch for those. And then a couple times a week, we're just going to pack our own. And I think there, maybe like you said, then you can also use that opportunity to have your child learn about let's let's talk about what what a real meal looks like and how you put that together. So I think that that's really good advice. Thanks so much. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. This was an absolute pleasure and I can't say enough how much I appreciate the work that you do and really the champion that you are for kids and kids nutrition. So thank you so much. My my pleasure. This is really great. Excellent. Well, thanks a lot. And thanks again to everyone for tuning in. If you're enjoying our podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and leave us some comments and let us know what topics would help you out, what you'd like us to cover and what you think of the show. Thanks so much. 